I would say if you're just getting into whiskey for the first time to try as many different kinds as you can to see what you actually like. Over the glass of scotch overlooking the ocean, they looked around and there's farmlands everywhere and Jess said, you know, I think we could make this. This is the Food Podcast, a Village Soundcast network production where personal stories are shared through the lens of food. It reminds you that this isn't just about that $18 cocktail that you're getting at the bar. It's about the field of rye that's being grown in Vermont. And it's just a good reminder of where things come from. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. I've been watching The Crown on Netflix, and a particular scene is lingering in my memory. It's 1952, early morning, and Queen Mary is sitting at her desk writing a letter to her granddaughter, Princess Elizabeth. Queen Mary's son, King George VI, has just died. Elizabeth will be his successor. Queen Mary has advice for Elizabeth on duty, on putting the crown first, on saying goodbye to the old Elizabeth and welcoming the new. Queen Mary pauses to ruminate between scratches of fountain pen on paper. She inhales deeply from a cigarette holder, exhales, then brings what looks like an oxygen mask to her face and inhales again. Queen Mary then reaches for a crystal tumbler and takes a sip of an amber liquid. Neat. Scotch, perhaps? Then, with thoughts formed, she continues with the letter. I soak up details like these. I studied history at university, but I have to admit, I cruised along my first few years reading and churning out essays, more or less on time, and not really connecting with the subject until I took a class on material culture. Material culture refers to the physical objects, resources, and spaces that people use to define their culture. A queen drinking a glass of whiskey, for example, can say so much. A glass speaks to the technology of the time, or industry, or design, or social standing. The liquid in the glass, a smoky, peaty, fiery scotch, tells us about the queen's palate, her authority, her strength, her nod towards tradition, but at the same time, towards independence. It's when these details are added together, a picture forms of the period, a political, economic, and social picture. Once I discovered this approach at university, essentially how to see a big story through a glass of scotch whiskey, history came alive for me. And then my desire for story kicks in. I have to go a little deeper. She was born Princess Mary of Teck, a title derived from a small corner of the German kingdom of Württemberg. But she was British born and raised. She was a serene princess, which means she wasn't a royal, but a rank below. Mary was the eldest child of four and the only girl. Apparently, she grew up tough and practical. Queen Victoria noticed and liked these qualities and arranged for her to marry her son Edward, who was second in line to the throne. But Edward died of influenza before they could marry, so instead, she married the next in line, Prince George. Princess Mary wouldn't have known that 18 years after marrying Prince George and raising six children, that Queen Victoria's successor, Edward VII, would die and she and her husband would be thrust into position, just like Elizabeth. Devotion to duty would take over. Goodbye, old Mary. Hello, Queen. So how does a queen assert herself, her own personal authority, when the public side of her life is duty and devotion? Well, she smokes and drinks scotch in the morning 
when the birds are just waking up while writing a letter. Today on the Food Podcast, we tackle whiskey and women. I'll talk to Canadian Olympian turned whiskey distiller Tracy Cameron and New Yorker Julia Ritz Tafoli, founder of Women Who Whiskey, an experimental whiskey club for women with chapters all over the world. It's all about character, strength, and depth of flavor. Today on the Food Podcast. Tracy Cameron and her husband Jared Stewart are the owners of Caldera Distillery in River John, along the north shore of Nova Scotia. I spoke with Tracy recently over the phone. Internet is patchy at her house up on the hill. I asked her to describe her view. We carved out a little four-acre lot in River John. We're up on a hill. We're tucked into an old farm shed. Um, used to be home here, but only now we see the remnants of that. The old stone from Scotland we've uncovered and... Yeah, we carved out a little spot for ourselves with our gardens and through our woodlot we've made about five kilometers worth of trail and the girls just have a huge playground here and if we look out in the morning we can see the deer and the geese that are flying south now and uh, if we overlook the field next to us we've got a whole bunch of beef cattle that we see going back and forth and in their daily migration and if we go a little further down the driveway we'll find the distillery. There you'll just see the big old warehouse where all the work is actually done. And right beside that is the old barn that was originally here on the property, which we've converted into a nice little tasting room so that you can experience a little sip of Caldera. This is new for them. Before Tracy and Jared moved to River John, before they had two children, Jared owned a solar energy company. And Tracy, she was an Olympic rower. It's interesting how life can take a turn, but it was their choice. Both had reached the top of their games, and Tracy, originally from Nova Scotia, wanted to go home. Her childhood was surrounded by family, grandparents, aunts, uncles, and cousins, people that supported her and loved her, and she wanted the same for her future family. But what would they do? That was the question. Well, my parents own a place out on Cape John. It's a little spit of land just beside River John. We were overlooking the ocean one night, and my dad and Jared were drinking a little glass of scotch. We were trying to decide what we could do here in Nova Scotia for our career, for entrepreneurial venture, and we thought, okay, well, if we're going to start in Nova Scotia, what can we start here? What is it that we could do here? Over the glass of scotch, overlooking the ocean, they looked around, and there's farmlands everywhere, and Jared says, you know, I think we could make this. And swirled his glass around, and my dad said, yeah, you know what, I think we could probably do that. They took it seriously. The next day, Jarrett really looked into property costs were for farmland around here and what the growing conditions are like, because if you're going to make whiskey, you're going to need rye and barley and corn, and so how is Nova Scotia for that? As it turns out, as we know, there's beautiful agricultural land in Nova Scotia and everything grows extremely well here on the North Shore. So the idea took seed and it started to take root from there. Tracy says her husband Jared was no stranger to challenge, to starting something new, to just going for it. And I'd say Tracy is exactly the same. She seems to thrive in the face of a challenge. And it all started back in Nova Scotia with her brother, 
in their backyard. I remember watching the Olympics with my brother when we were probably five and eight years old. Whatever was happening on TV, we then went and replicated it in the backyard. So if it was a running event, we ran around the house. Or if it was javelin, we threw a baseball to see who could go the farthest. And we had a pool, so we did the swimming events and we decked it out with a whole Olympic ceremony and had the medals and we really played hard. I always lost every time because my brother's two years older than me. But he would make me raise his hand and declare him world champion and at that point I thought I am not going to lose forever and I wanted to be an Olympian ever since those play days in the backyard. I've introduced Tracy as an Olympic rower so spoiler alert we already know she reached her goal but one might assume her training regime began right away that day but she didn't discover the sport of rowing until she was in her early 20s. There's hope late bloomers out there keep your dreams alive anything is possible. This is how it all played out. There were the years of growing up as an active kid in Nova Scotia, then studying at Acadia University, playing varsity basketball. But that Olympic dream, it was still there. After leaving Acadia, I knew I wanted to do a master's degree in sport medicine because I had it in my mind that I wanted to go to the Olympics. But at that point in time, I wasn't making it as an athlete. I played on the Acadia basketball team, but I was more of a bench warmer than I was a player. So I saw moving to Calgary and joining the sport medicine program as an opportunity to go to the Olympics as medical personnel and just help to support the team. And then when I got to Calgary, something really strange happened. I've never been not surrounded by water so it felt like a fish out of water couldn't see water all I could see were flatlands and mountains and I got this overwhelming feeling like I needed water one night after school I just headed down to the Glenmore Reservoir which is a city's water it's a big lake body of water in Calgary that is their water source for drinking but it's also where all the water sports happen so there's canoers and kayakers it's not unlike Lake Winook here in Nova Scotia you know you see everything you've got the dragon boaters and the sailboats and, and everyone's out there playing on the water and I knew that's where I needed to be as soon as I saw the scene. As I was watching, I saw the rowers and was really intrigued by these long, skinny boats and the long oars and thought, I'm going to try this. So I went down to the club, found a Learn to Row sign up and just signed up for a week-long Learn to Row program. After about a day or two in the class, I thought, oh my God, I love this. I love it. I love it. I love it. It was just such, it felt so good to be on the water and and to be active again, to be an athlete again. And so I said to my Learn to Row coach after the week was over, I'm going to the Olympics in this sport. <laughs> and he kind of looked at me like, okay, you might want to focus on making the club level team first. <laughs> Anyhow, that's where it began. Over the next few years, she'd row from 5 a.m. to 7 a.m. and then study. There was that sports medicine master's. Then she'd train again at night from 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. And she just kept chipping away at it. And then two years later, I won a major regatta with one of my clubmates. We raced the double at Canadian Henley, the biggest club regatta that you can imagine. There's about 3,000 athletes that are coming from all over the world. The kicker is you can't be a national team member, so it's only club-level athletes there. So it's really the up-and-coming stars, and you get a chance to see how you are at that level. And that's where the national team scouts are, and they come and they see the races and see who's around the corner. So after Judy and I, my partner from Calgary, won that race, that's where kind of I was identified as being a potential team member, and I was invited to come and train with the group. 
in Victoria, even though I wouldn't get any funding and I wasn't a carded athlete and I wasn't officially on the team, they invited me to come and train with them. So that was two years after I began rowing. Is this the right time to mention that I rode at university in a 20-year-old wooden shell from the 1976 Montreal Olympics? The eight of us, nine with the Cox, thought we weren't bad, training half the amount of time as Tracy, trying our best to pull that heavy boat through the northwest arm in Halifax, dodging sailboats. Our competition, they were rowing in carbon fiber, light as a feather rowing shells. And when we'd let loose, I'm pretty sure I was enjoying a little whiskey, but in a baby step kind of way. <laughs> I drank rye and ginger. That's rye whiskey and ginger ale. All my friends drank it too. Rye is a whiskey popular in Canada because it's made from rye with wheat and barley in there too. These are ingredients that thrive in Canada. I pulled the rest of my family. For both my parents, their first drink was also rye and ginger. My older sister, Sally, she lived in Mexico in her early 20s, and she loved pina coladas and still does. Well, my youngest sister, she drank Mike's Hard Lemonade in university, and she worried that sharing these details would be a blight on the family. Anyway, my middle sister, Lee, she was deeply frugal at university, and that explains her devotion to the $5 watery pitcher she always ordered at her university pub. But then, after university, while working in a pub in Stracker, Scotland, on Loch Fine, she was required to sample 200 or so varieties of Scotch whiskey behind the bar so she could properly share the flavor profiles with the patrons. She says they all tasted like, I think her words were, fiery vomit. Well, all right, Lee, don't mince words. I think her palate has matured since then. We've all matured drink-wise. At least I no longer drink ginger ale with my whiskey. I think Jesse's off the mic's hard. All right, anyway, back to Tracy. It does feel a bit gross to reminisce about Ryan Ginger and then hop immediately into a rowing shell, but I've done it before. I'll do it again. In 2004... Tracy tried out for the Olympic team as a heavyweight rower. It was the year leading up to the Athens Olympics. Despite doing very well and keeping up with the pack, I ended up being the very last cut from the team. So that was a bit of a kicker to me because I had such belief and I always knew that you know, if you really truly believe in something and you believe that it's in you, that it can happen. And when it didn't happen, I was completely shocked. Floored. You know, I thought, oh my gosh. Maybe I'm too confident in myself and my abilities. But anyway, I ended up going back to Calgary and left the training center because the girls had to focus on Olympic training and the girls that were on the team. I was at a crossroad at that point. Do I keep going and try for the next quadrennium? Or do I focus now on my work and my career? And at that point, I was working with chronic pain patients and brain injured patients. So... As you can imagine, being cut from the team and then coming back to work with these people whose entire lives have changed in the blink of a moment because of an injury, I felt like my little woes of not making the team just disappeared. But that summer, while watching the girls race in the Olympics, she knew she couldn't hang up the oars yet. She had some unfinished business to attend to. So Tracy went back to the sport, but this time as a lightweight rower. That's a drop from 150 weight requirement to 130 pounds. She visited the Sports Medicine Center and confirmed, after lots of poking and prodding, 
that it would be safe for her body type and physiology to drop the weight with careful monitoring. And she went for it. That first summer that I showed up as a lightweight was the year after the Athens Olympics. And I ended up becoming the fastest lightweight in Canada that summer. Me and a group of three other girls raced in a quad in Japan, and we ended up winning the world championship. So first year on the team, we were declared world champions, and it was just a whirlwind of a beginning, and that set the stage for the years to come. Oh, and the most exciting part is that my brother had to raise my hand and declare me world champion, <laughs> which was definitely a highlight of my life. <laughs> Over the next four-year cycle, Tracy raced in many World Cups and World Championships. She had great partners and did very well. And by the end of the four years, she was standing on the podium in Beijing with a bronze medal around her neck. The race was close, the closest a race can be. It was a photo finish, so we had everybody on the edge of their seats, including ourselves. Rowing is a, it's a funny thing. It's kind of, it's not a short distance. It's not like the swimmers in the pool where you expect milliseconds between first place and eighth place. And it's not like the marathon where there's a good spread. It's kind of that middle distance. It's about a seven minute race for us. So typically it's not a photo finish. You might have two to four seconds between finishers. But this race, our race, ended up being head-to-head, neck-and-neck. There were four across, and the Dutch got out slightly in front, and they won the gold. And then there were three of us who sat there. We heard the beep as we crossed the finish line. It went, and no one knew. And it didn't flash up on the scoreboard who had got second and third and fourth. So we all sat there. It was Finland, us, and Germany. So then Finland flashed up as the silver medal. At that point, I thought, oh my gosh, it's between us and Germany. And I just over and over in my head kept saying, Canada, 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 Canada. And when Canada flashed up on the board, it was just like, (gasps) I don't know. Every emotion I've ever experienced came through that one breath of oxygen coming into my body. It was like, oh, thank God. (laughs) So it was elation like I've never experienced. And uh, yeah, thankful. Thankful that the 0.04 of a second was in our favor versus the German. I have goosebumps for Tracy, for her strength and tenacity, for Canada, and for Nova Scotia. And now we have her back in our province, transferring that energy into her family, the land, and the community around her. After Beijing, Tracy went on a sailing adventure. She did a lot of biking, and she spent some time in Manhattan studying at the Natural Gourmet Institute. And then there was more rowing. She went back to the sport, but this time as a heavyweight. Rowing, she says, felt so good and so right. She was winning world championships again, but the vibe in the boat wasn't the same anymore. There was bickering between her partner and their coach. There was stress and tension all around, so much so that Tracy cracked a rib while pulling a stroke one day. Rehabilitation followed, and when she was strong enough again, she had to race, literally, to win her seat back in the boat. The London Olympics were on the horizon, and of course she wanted to go. But when she did win her seat back, by four boat lengths, things weren't the same anymore. I've gone from having so much joy in the sport and so much love for the sport of just really not wanting to go to practices in the morning and not wanting to be in that boat and not wanting to hear the negativity. And it just got to a point of one morning I decided that I was done with that. I was done with crying. I was done with not feeling good. I was done with the unhappiness. 
I said to my fiancé at the time, who's now my husband, I said, you know what, I'm done. It was 52 days out from the Olympics. And I said, there's not another day that I need to go without feeling happy because that's the most important thing in life. I made a statement that morning to the national team director that I would resign from my seat and that Patricia could take my seat in the Olympics because I really believed that in order to do well, in order to excel, in order to win an Olympic medal, all the stars have to align. You have to believe in your training partner. You have to believe in the coach. You have to believe in the program that you're doing. And it really takes magic. And those two had it, and I did not have it in that situation. So it felt like a huge way lifted off my shoulders and people ask if I've ever regretted that moment and I said no you know what if my two little girls someday are in a situation where they're unhappy and they stay in it that is the worst thing that I could imagine so the fact that after that day it was just the joy started coming back in life and I started to smile again and it started to feel better I knew that I had made the right decision. And that's when they moved home. Jared took distillation courses with Tracy's father and brother in the States, then another course in Montreal, followed by an online course from Scotland. That led to a trip to Scotland where they visited Forsyths, who make stills. Jared put in an order, and that's when Tracy knew they were in this for the long haul. The order was in for the stills, and we purchased the land in the summer, so we had the space to grow our own. And that was a big deal to us in that you're going to make something, as I had in cooking school, I think the best food that you make is something that when you use the local ingredients, it's something that's been picked freshly from your own garden. And so it wasn't a huge stretch to say, well, if we're going to do this, we're going to do it right from the field to the bottle. So we wanted to be involved with every step along the way to ensure the quality ingredient. The next big thing for us was basically to learn how to be farmers. <laughs> Neither of us had any experience whatsoever in agriculture or farming. And it shows in our first crop. We've since recruited some helpers along the way who've been farming for years and they'll be helping us with next year's crop and beyond, hopefully. Because we have in Nova Scotia lots of farmers that are growing the grains, we've been able to source local ingredients that weren't grown at our farm for the first batches. So that's been great. All right, it's time for Whiskey 101. My whiskey knowledge is limited. Minimal, in fact. It doesn't go far beyond rail liquor. Rail liquor refers to the bottles along the rail at arm's reach from the bartender. The bottles they grab when someone just requests whiskey. The bottles up above, they're the libations requested by name for their flavor, their age, their terroir. I have to say, when whiskey is poured in my house, rarely are the women offered a glass. It is just as much my fault as it is theirs. I don't ask for it. But come on, guys, if you don't pass it around, how will the ladies know if they like it or not? I called upon Julia Ritz Tofoli, founder of the club Women Who Whiskey. They do tastings all the time. Perfect. And she shares on her website that she studied at McGill University in Montreal, where her first intro into the world of whiskey was through Ryan Ginger. She was perfect for me. So I patched her in from New York City and we got right down to business. So start by smelling it. And the way you want to do that is don't stick your nose in the glass and just inhale. That way you'll just get a bunch of alcohol fumes and it'll make your nose hairs tickle. 
If you sort of angle the glass down towards your mouth at a 45-degree angle and put your nose around the top of the glass, that way you can start to get the smell of what's on the nose of the whiskey and leave some room for the alcohol to kind of evaporate out underneath. For the tasting, I had selected a 12-year-old red breast, an Irish whiskey. I wanted to choose a whiskey Julia would know by memory. She was working at her day job when we spoke in strategic planning for an international human rights philanthropy organization in New York. And it wouldn't be fair to ask her to do an over-Skype caldera tasting if she didn't have a glass in front of her as well. I angled the glass downwards as instructed and inhaled. I smelled honey, toasted nuts. The angle of the glass kept the fumes from singeing my nose as they have in the past. I wished I had more adjectives, but Julie said not to worry that so many people get wrapped up in snooty tasting notes. Just go with whatever comes to mind. I told her memories come to mind more than anything else. That's good. That's why we drink whiskey. I love red breasts. It's one of my favorites. And I think Irish whiskey in particular is having a bit of a revival right now, which is great because there's a lot of great product coming out of there. Red breast is aged in sherry casks from Spain. So I don't know if you're picking up on this, but some of the smells that you might be getting are sort of like rich raisin um, or, you know, dark stone fruits, um, preserves, things like that. Smells that might be evocative of the time that it spent aging in a barrel that had previously housed a fortified wine. That kind of preserved grape might be coming through in the form of these sort of rich, sweet, jammy, fruity notes. Yeah, there's definitely, it's like a thick smell. There's like, there's a depth to it way beyond a simple honey. Yeah. Would you say that Redbreast was a nice entry whiskey to someone learning and starting out? Absolutely. I think it is. It, it absolutely is. It's nice. It's not too, you know, it's not smoky at all. So it's not going to be putting you off if that's something that you don't enjoy. It does have a little bit of this more, I don't want to say fruity per se, but a slightly rounder, sweeter, and a way more approachable palate than a lot of whiskeys do. Julia says, if you meet a whiskey you don't like, you have to keep trying. Like wine, the variety is so huge that there truly is something out there for everyone. I would say if you're getting into whiskey for the first time to try as many different kinds as you can to see what you actually like. Because what might have been a good entry whiskey for someone might not be the right one for you. Right. That makes sense. Now I'm going to have a sip. Good. It's about time. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, so yummy. First, there's like a a wave of fumes. Mm -hmm. Kind of warms the tongue. And there's a slight sort of, not peppery, but like a bitterness on the back of the tongue and the sweet lingers in the front like the not sweet but that honey and now that you've now I feel a little bit like oh it's definitely cherry (laughs) (laughs) oh but it's lovely one of my general tips for tasting whiskey is come back to it right the first thing you taste is going to be very different from what you get in the next five or ten minutes I'd also say if you can have a little bit of water nearby both to cleanse your palate between tastes or also to, after you've tasted it neat, add a little bit to the whiskey to sort of open it up. Depending on the proof of a whiskey, sometimes the alcohol can get in the way of actually tasting all those flavors. So by bringing down the proof a little bit, you are letting your nose and your palate get used to the actual different flavor particles that are in there as opposed to kind of being sucker punched by this high proof alcohol. 
Whiskey, in its most basic sense, is a spirit distilled from malted grain or grain mash. When I say grain, I'm talking about rye, barley, wheat and corn, that kind of thing. Now, I should clarify that corn is actually a vegetable, not a grain. But for the sake of simplicity, let's call it a grain. Whiskies vary depending on the type of grains and the combinations of grains used. To make it confusing, whiskies have different names, but generally, grains thrive in varying areas. Therefore, different areas have their own whiskies made from the dominant grain from that area. Let's break it down. Scotch is a whiskey produced in Scotland, consisting of malted barley, but other whole grains from other cereals are allowed in there as well. Some scotches have a smoky quality. This is because they've been produced in coastal areas where peat smoke is used in the distillation process. Bourbon is made from at least 51% corn, but other grain mixtures are also present. The blend can be labeled as bourbon if it's made in the USA. There is an ongoing dispute over whether bourbon has to come from Kentucky, but I'm not going to touch that one. Nirai rye is a tricky one. Here in Canada, where we've been distilling rye since the beginning, there are no firm rules on percentage of rye to other combinations of grain mashes. In the States, there must be 51% rye in there to call it a rye whiskey. Irish whiskey is a broad term given to any whiskey distilled in Ireland made from distilled grain mash. When you add the aging process, which for Scotch and Irish whiskies take place in bourbon barrels, then for Scotch, often in sherry barrels after that, layers of flavors and the spirits that have inhabited those barrels before it are added on. While bourbon, it's aged in virgin oak barrels and there are no lingering spirits at all. Finally, in the United Kingdom, whiskey is spelled without an E. W-H-I-S-K-Y. That's a very abridged general guide. Julia would undoubtedly find a few holes in there. But she didn't start Women Who Whiskey to quiz people on whiskey. She started it to celebrate whiskey and to bring like-minded women together to socialize, to learn, and to connect. Right now, it's a global organization encompassing, I think, almost 25 different chapters. I think now we're in a number of countries, mostly in the U.S. and Canada, but we have some startup chapters on the African continent, in Europe. We're looking at Australia, even expanding to Asia, so it's growing really quickly. It is a whiskey club for women. I like to say that we bring the experts to the audience because we want to make sure that our members are able to learn about what they want to learn about with whiskey, whether they're at a beginner's level or whether they're already knowledgeable, but looking to expand the different types of whiskeys that they've tried. We like to mix it up. I think that something that I experienced early on was that there was a lot of formality and a lot of sort of pomp and circumstance around the whiskey world. And we kind of wanted to break down that unaccessible barrier, you know, lower the barrier to entry for people who were either a little bit nervous or thought it was too expensive or too um, snobby. There's a snobby side to whiskey, but there's also a masculine side too. Some women, like Queen Mary, were able to rise above that categorization, but historically, it hasn't been easy. Whiskey has long been perceived as a man's drink. Prohibition changed that a little bit, but I think the regressive social trend that especially this country took after World War II saw kind of a return to those traditional gender norms. 
At that point, I think women were starting to drink more socially and it was becoming more acceptable, but they were drinking more light drinks like cocktails or wine and things like that, whereas whiskey was still kind of paired with cigars and part of the men's smoking room or the dinner club and things like that. Aside from those kind of like macro social factors, I think there's a lot of micro social factors where because that's the way it was for men, women in family situations were maybe not inspired to take up drinking whiskey because it was something that they saw their grandfather or their father do behind closed doors versus something that their grandmothers or their mothers were doing. And thankfully that's changing. It's true. I've been told that my late grandfather used to head down to the basement to check the furnace when his friends dropped by. My grandmother wasn't a drinker, and it's no wonder I was raised in a world of gender-specific drinks. But that is changing. I really loved that red breast. I think that's the way a lot of women feel that I know. But I do think there is kind of this default fallback on the idea that light, floral, not too alcoholic tasting, you know, your Cosmos and your like flowery gin drinks and things are the more feminine ones, whereas strong, smoky, peaty scotches and high-proof bourbons are for the real men. Although I will say that similarly to how women are making inroads in the whiskey world, especially in the UK, gin has always been sort of non-gender specific. Men enjoy gin a lot there, a lot more than they do in the States. But I do think that the gin revival that's happening in the UK is bleeding over to the US and it's actually encouraging a lot of men to take up these more floral feminine cocktails with more enthusiasm and with less shame or embarrassment, so to speak. It's helping, I think. You know, it's not just about men feeling defensive of their own world of whiskey and, and you know, women trying to take that away from them and make it a non-gendered space. I think the fact that men are exploring things that traditionally aren't seen as masculine is also kind of helping to blur that line about what is for men and what is for women. It is a world that I never really was aware of or knew existed. And it was almost like opening the door to Narnia. Like there was just this sort of drab closet door in my life and I was like oh bartenders and then I walked through the store through you know my relationships that I started building through women who whiskey and it was like on the other side of this closet was actually this like beautiful magical land of people and knowledge and relationships and support and it's been one of the only networks in which you can meet somebody once or twice and consider them a close friend they will go out of their way to do something for you if you need it and everybody's always willing to help It's such an amazing community that I wasn't even aware of before I started any of this. Tracy Cameron said that one of the first challenges of starting a distillery was learning how to become a farmer. She said their first crop needed lots of help. And in order to learn to make it better, she and her husband had to connect with local farmers and learn from them. The distillery brought them all together. Their goal by next summer is for everything they put into their mash to be 100% homegrown. They opened the door to Narnia. And now they are running through. It reminds you that this isn't just about that $18 cocktail that you're getting at the bar. It's about the field of rye that's being grown in Vermont. And the person that's selling you the bottle at the bar is also the person that's going to go back to that farm and spend time with the master blender and the master distiller and all of those people. It's just a good reminder of where things come from. I like to think about the stories that go into every bottle. The farmland, the salty air, the farmers, both new and old. Their past lives, their past careers. The distributors and the bartenders, the women at the bar. The people curled up by the fire, with glasses tilted just a little as they inhale that amber liquid. 
Is it honey, floral notes, or spirits of the barrel? It doesn't matter. Just share the moment with all genders and connect. And who knows, maybe someone will be studying moments like these in a material culture class someday down the road. Thank you, Tracy Cameron, for sharing your story. You can find more about Caldera Distilling by visiting caldera.ca, C-A-L-D-E-R-A. And thanks to Julia Ritz-Tofoli. Find out if there's a Women Who Whiskey chapter in your area by visiting womenwhowhiskey.club. And that's whiskey with an E. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at The Food Podcast. And please sign up for my newsletter where I'll keep you up to date on podcast news, share backstories from the episodes, and sometimes there are recipes in there too. You can sign up at lindsaycameronwilson.ca. And as always, thanks to Jen Grant for our theme song. Thanks for listening. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production. 